Romans uh, chapter 4 is the last uh, section, last chapter in the first section of uh, what many uh, what, what many consider to be the first section of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. It's the last chapter um, in uh, the first section, Romans uh, chapter 4. It's found on page 1751. As we prepare to hear God's word, let's pray together. Lord God, may we hear your word for our lives today. In whatever our circumstance, help us to recognize your faithfulness, to know of your love, and to experience that your call to us is one of faith. Increase our faith. Strengthen our faith. Make our faith sure in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and by his Spirit. Amen. Romans 4. What shall we say that, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise worthless, because law brings wrath, and there is no, and where there is no law, There's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver 
through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Well, the Boonster House has a new puppy. Her name is Callie. She's from Taiwan. They have a dog there called a Formosa Mountain Dog, or FMD, and Callie is an FMD lab mix. Of course, we had to do some exploring to discover what an FMD was like, and she's trying to figure out what we're like. If you're a dog and you come into a new family, you want to discover what you can about this pack that you're joining. And Callie is shy, but she's slowly discovering we're not such a bad group. Sort of like what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 4. He's trying to help Christians understand what it means to be part of God's family. We're a family by God's covenant promise. We're in a right relationship with God. By grace, we're part of the covenant family. It's a family that stretches all the way back to Abraham. What shall we say? asks Paul. See, Paul wants Roman Christians, both Jew and Gentile, to know that all who believe are a family formed by God's promise. Everyone that God justifies is adopted into Abraham's family. We're not Abraham's family by flesh. The family we've been adopted into is not the ethnic, physical family of Abraham. We're related to Abraham because of God's covenant promise. Genesis 15 speaks of God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah. God promised that they would have an extraordinary family, and Abraham believed God. Paul quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Receiving God's promise by faith is the foundation of God's covenant with his people. It's not based on works. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul doesn't want anybody to think that Christianity is just a subset of ethnic Judaism. Christianity isn't defined by works of the law. Some Jews in Paul's day taught that Abraham had some kind of advanced knowledge of the Jewish law to which he gave obedience. Nonsense! The law of God came 450 years after Abraham. Paul is clear. Abraham has no right to boast because, from God's perspective, he was not and could not be justified by works. No, the gospel hinges on God's grace. Abraham was declared right by God as pure gift. Paul points to the analogy of payment for work. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. If you get a job and receive a paycheck at the end of the first two-week period, you don't prattle on and on about the kindness that has come your way. Your paycheck doesn't come to you as a gift out of the blue. 
It's simply a mutually agreed upon contract between an employer and an employee. If you didn't get your paycheck, you might protest your employer's breach of contract. But there's no legal or contractual obligation on God's part. God wasn't obligated toward Abraham. God didn't have to give Abraham anything. No quid pro quo. Rather, Abraham received a righteous status from God. He was vindicated and it was all gift. Anyone declared right with God receives this status in the same way. Pure gift. Righteousness is a gift of God's grace even after God gave the law. The law simply reveals how best to live in this world in response to God's gift. So we enter this covenant family, says Paul, by faith in God's promise. To the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. Ungodly, pagan Abraham. Starting in the same place that all non-Jews start, wasn't welcomed by God because he was on a journey of faith or because he had a habit of prayer or because he displayed works that were pleasing to God. One preacher notes, here's the most truly radical thing of all. Abraham, far from being a model of righteousness, is first and foremost the original justified sinner, the original ungodly person who is reshaped by God into godliness. Not because of his own deeds, but because of the God who does the unimaginable thing. The God who justifies, rectifies, redeems, and remakes the least acceptable, most ungodly person. God's promise was unconditional. There's no ifs present. If you're good, I'll bless you. If you believe, I'll bless you. If you repent, I'll bless you. Salvation doesn't come with qualifiers. There are no performance standards or levels of achievement. If you think being saved is like climbing a ladder, each rung a matter of your accomplishment, then Paul says you are sadly mistaken. See, you don't get shut out because of what you've done or left undone. No exclusion because of your religious, ethnic, or racial background. Acts of devotion or obedience won't achieve God's promise. God received Abraham as he was. But God didn't leave him there. God never said Abraham was fine as he was. Paul makes this point by pointing to the witness of David. David celebrated the truth that even though we still sin, God doesn't count our sins against us. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. God's forgiveness means our sin isn't calculated against us. I mean, check out Abraham's life. Even after he believed God's promise, he too often took matters into his own hands. But God's promise remained true. God remained in covenant with Abraham no matter what. See, we're part of a family 
that started with Abraham. A family whose sins are forgiven by the death of Jesus. A family part of this gracious covenant of God. And God's promise is ours by faith. All who believe are children of Abraham. It's faith that matters. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, though later he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Perhaps one of the most solemn moments in a wedding ceremony happens when the bride and groom exchange rings. When I officiate at weddings, I sometimes wonder whether the couple understands the promises they've offered each other. They're so caught up in the day and the feelings, the romance, the surroundings. Do they realize the power that they invoke and the promise they make? I give you this ring as a symbol of our covenant in Christ. The ring is a sign. It says to the wearer and to the spouse, to the gathered community, in fact, to the whole world, that a new relationship has come into being. The couple makes a covenant in Christ. They bind themselves to each other, including all the stresses and strains marital life can bring. Now, you don't need a ring to be married. The ring bears witness To the promise. And from that day forward, any lasting marriage endures by faith in that promise. Not on the basis of that ring. The ring's only a symbol. The ring can tarnish, it can wear smooth, be bent out of shape, but the promise still stands. You can lose the ring, but the promise still stands. When you receive the promise in faith, you trust that your spouse will be there for whatever unpredictable future you might face. When you receive God's promise in faith, you trust that God will be there for you in any unpredictable future. See, Paul wants to be clear. Circumcision, that sign, isn't essential. It's not a necessary part of belonging to Abraham's family. Now, Paul had bumped into that kind of opposition before in Galatia. Jewish Christians tried to persuade Gentile converts that they needed to to get circumcised. The argument was that you couldn't be a full-fledged member of Abram's family without being circumcised. Nonsense, says Paul. Read the Genesis story. God established the covenant, as shown in Genesis 15. God counted Abram's faith toward being in the right while Abraham was still uncircumcised. So for Abraham is the father of all who believe. Faith is what matters. Gentile converts don't need to be circumcised. Look again at verses 11 and 12. He, Abraham, is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised. He is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I remember a song that was popular in Sunday school and VBS and kids camps a number of years ago. Maybe it's still popular. I don't know. After all, it includes uh, hand and foot motions. The song's Father Abraham. Right? And it goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. 
Now, granted, if you're a girl, you might have to swallow hard to get past the son's part. But there's some good theology here. We're children of Abraham and Sarah by faith in what God has done. Paul points us toward two inescapable conclusions. One, the family of Abraham and Sarah contains Gentiles as well as Jews on the basis of belief in the gospel. This is the gospel at its most inclusive. God's promise is for all nations, not just Israel. But secondly, Paul heightens the exclusivity of the gospel. He narrows it down so that Jews are not included automatically. Of course, Jews like Paul and the earliest Christians are welcome, but the welcome is on the basis of faith. Religious observance doesn't qualify us. Sin doesn't disqualify us. All peoples are included based on exclusive belief in Jesus. As one pastor notes, God promises salvation by his grace to those who will simply take God, his, God at his word and trust Jesus. It's all about faith in God's promise, not about our performance. This promise to Abraham and his family includes inheritance of the world. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. See, here's the thing. In in the Genesis story, the writer declares that God's promise to Abraham included the piece of land, the territory then known as the land of Canaan, roughly the area of what today we call the Holy Land. But by Paul's time, in fact, throughout the whole New Testament, the idea of a holy land, meaning one strip of territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, has vanished. Instead, a new idea begins to take shape about this idea of land. The whole world. Romans 8 says, the entire creation. We'll get there. The whole world is claimed by God as holy land and is promised to Abraham as inheritance. That kind of turns Jewish thinking on its head. See, there's no longer any privilege of geography for a particular ethnic group in this new world ruled by the crucified and risen Messiah. See, God intends to put the whole world right. Abraham's family will be a multi-ethnic group that inhabits the world. So it should come as no surprise that God's intention in promising Abraham the land of Canaan was simply a step toward ruling and renewing the whole world. And notice again, it doesn't come to those who depend on the law. If you introduce law into the equation, you won't inherit a thing. But there's more. See, the main problem with law, as Paul had pointed out earlier in chapter 3, is that law simply points out our sin. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is, where there is law, we see our transgression. For Gentile Christians to be welcomed into and to belong to God's family, God's people. They must not be identified 
by Jewish law. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham's family was never meant to be from one nation. It is by faith, not law, that we, that we are children of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. Many sons and daughters had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. And so are you. All by grace, through faith. So let's all praise the Lord. See, Christian faith means hoping against all hope. When the outcome doesn't seem very likely, faith hopes strongly that God will act. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. See, Abraham's hope was not in his strength, his ability to perform. Abraham's hope was not in the certainty that he would get his way. Abraham's hope was his faith that God was in charge, that God would get God's way. Now, it doesn't take 2020 eyesight to realize we live in a world that seems pretty hopeless. God may promise to save the nations, but so many nations seem to be on the hope of salvation. Terror grips many nations. Others live under the thumb of unjust rulers. Peace in the Middle East or between Ukraine and Russia seems out of reach. Some nations endure nearly endless drought or storm or climate crisis. And economic uncertainty looms over many. Disease overwhelms lives. Cancers and treatments and relapses. And now a coronavirus threatens the well-being of millions worldwide. How is it possible against all hope to in hope believe? Well, Paul clues us in. He tells us that Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. See, the foundation of our hope is the kind of God who meets us in this hopeless world. Our hope is in our God who brings life out of death. Of course, Paul has Abraham and Sarah in mind. Without weakening in his faith, he, Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. I mean, what chance was there that Abraham could father a child at 99 years old? He might die during sex. And Sarah was severely postmenopausal. She was no longer ovulating. Even if a stray sperm might feebly swim upstream, there would be no egg to fertilize. Now, if they were 20 years old, well, then things might be looking up. I mean, there must have been plenty of fertile young couples God could have chosen to begin a nation out of which salvation would come to the whole world. I mean, choosing anyone other than Abraham and Sarah would have been the most sensible route. But that's not God's way. 
I mean, when God wanted to, to bring salvation to the world, God wanted it to be very clear that life, true, lasting, real life, would only come through death. Then no one could conclude they'd earned it, orchestrated it, manipulated it, or anything else. Only God gives life. And more, only God can take the brokenness of sin and turn it toward the life that God intends. Abraham's faith isn't just heroic trust in the face of overwhelming odds. N.T. Wright points out that Paul paints a picture of the deliberate reversal of the misery of humanity that he described in chapter 1. 1 verse 20 and 25, humanity ignored God the creator. 4 verse 17, Abraham believed in God as creator and life giver. 1 verse 20, humans knew God's power, but they didn't worship God as God. 4 verse 21, Abraham recognized God's power and he trusted God to use it. 1 verse 21, humans did not give the glory God was due. 4 verse 20, Abraham gave glory to God. 1 verse 26 and 27, humans dishonored their own bodies by turning away from each other into same-sex relationships. 4 verse 19, Abraham and Sarah trusted God's promise, having sex with each other, conceiving a child. They fulfilled one of the deepest parts of God's covenant with humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Wright concludes, the ancient Jewish dream has been fulfilled. God called Abraham to undo the sin of the human race and this is how it has happened. God is the God of new hope, of new fruitfulness because He's the God of new starts, of fresh creation. God brings life out of death. God can call non-existent things into being. I mean, He did it at creation. He could do it at procreation. And God did it at recreation or resurrection. See, Abraham's the signpost pointing toward the goal that's reached in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection are the culmination of all God's promise made to Abraham. Abraham believed that God would give life where none existed. Christians believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And throughout the story, From Abraham to the resurrection of Jesus, we recognize that God is God and that our life and the life of this world are in God's hands. By faith, we hope against all hope that as God raised Jesus from the dead, God will bring life from death in our lives. The end of chapter 4 is the end of the first great section of Paul's letter. All that God promised has come true. Abram's faith is vindicated. The law is fulfilled. Human idolatry, sin, and death have met their match. God sent His own Son as Messiah. He is the faithful Israelite, doing for Israel and the world what they could not do on their own. And all who believe God's good news about His Son can be sure that we are the people of God's covenant.
A covenant that stretches all the way back to Abraham. Now this isn't the end of Paul's story in his letter to the Romans. There's more questions that he will tackle to help us see God's faithfulness. See, Paul isn't telling us that this is somebody else's story. He's telling us it's our story. It's your story. It's my story. We're part of this single worldwide family promised to Abraham. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you for welcoming us into your family. The family that stretches all the way back to the promise you made to Abraham and Sarah. That through them, all nations would be blessed. We're part of that, all nations. We're part of that blessing that Abraham and Sarah received. We are your people. By your grace. We are your people in faith. In hope. All because of your love. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.